everyone has heard of Jack the Ripper, one of the oldest unsolved cases in history. There are even Ripperologists that spend all their spare time studying the case of the murders of the disenfranchised women trying to secure a bite of food, a cot to sleep on, and feed their addiction to alcohol through sex work. But the case can't be reduced to what we think we know about the victims. Many of them were occasional sex workers. Others came from good families and even married and had kids. None of them deserved what happened to them. Throats slit, disemboweled, faces ruined. Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, Mary Kelly, who was so destroyed by the Ripper's work that her remains didn't seem human. And then, as suddenly as the killing started, they stopped. Were the murders the work of a devoted and sophisticated killer or a crazed mental patient? This is the case of Jack the Ripper, and this is Outline of a Murder. This is Outline of a Murder. I am your host, Sherry, and with me is Mom. Yes. Good morning. Afternoon. Yes. No, it's... Well, it might be afternoon Where, Wherever you are, hello. But this case, super excited. It's almost like the best for last, kind of, but it's actually in the middle. And this is Jack the Ripper. That's going to be very interesting. The reason I'm excited is you went on the tour. Uh-huh. I did. So, over in England... Mm-hmm. I get. I had no idea they have Jack the Ripper tours, and uh, so I'm excited for you to interject and like share some of the things that you've learned. This will probably be a two-parter, maybe a three. I'm not sure. Um, we'll just see how far we get. But like we've been doing in our mid-season mini-series, is we have drinks that they drank back in the day. Yes, this mid-season is all... She has one, Sherry, all the way to the 14... 1590. 1590. That'll be the last one. Elizabeth Batori. And uh, so I wanted to... And even the music for each podcast is period true. And uh, even the music I was able to find for the Batori podcast, um, music from 1590, written back then, played on a harpsichord. That's and crazy. so even some of the the podcast the music is from that time and I tweaked them a little bit. So That'd be great. But also what what is true is we need to continue our tradition of mom tasting drinks. Yep. Now, I did not think out well the drinks because you know we did wine the last season, uh, right? Yes. For you to test and yes. grade. 
Uh-huh. And so my mind got stuck on, I guess, those types of drinks. And I didn't realize we could have had maybe some teas, some coffees maybe that they had. Uh, instead, we're sitting here with a daiquiri at 9.26 a.m. <laughs> in, in this time, anyway. It might be later in your time. <laughs> right. So, didn't think that out. But, so far you've liked the pina colada, which was the Sam Shepard. You liked the French 75 better than the Manhattan for the Black Dahlia. She made the drinks for the era. Yes. I'd never so, yeah. made a cocktail, and the Manhattan was the first. So this is for? Uh, 1880. 1880? Mm-hmm. They had daiquiris? Mm-hmm. They had daiquiris. Or 1888. I'm sorry. They had daiquiris. Really? Yes. So let's let's right. let's try before we get into our okay. Jack the Ripper. That's good. Tastes mm. like fruit punch. Mm-hmm. That'd be that dangerous. Mm-hmm. Why is your glass littler? I don't know. Did you already drink all yours? No. Oh, I didn't want as much. I'm not big on alcohol, actually. <laughs> I'm not a big alcohol drinker. Mm, that's good. Although, what's weird is I mm. liked the Manhattan, which oh. was stout. Like, if you, and I apologize for us laughing hysterically. I was actually laughing hysterically. And we'll have videos of us doing our first drinks and pictures on our Instagram at Outline of a Murder and our Facebook. And please go to the website. And I would love if you guys give your thoughts and ideas, because a lot of these mm-hmm. cases, they're, some are unsolved. Uh, so the Black Dahlia is still unsolved. We did have like a bonus or a part three that goes into, you know, who mm-hmm. we think might have been a good suspect. Um, or if you've researched any of the cases, too, mm-hmm. and have any more knowledge we might need. Or if there's a case you want us to do. Well, and then on the lipstick killer, we both agreed that the crimes were totally yeah. separate, and we yeah. think that Hirons was innocent. Yeah. And then on Sam Shepard, I'm leaning toward the fact he was innocent, but I'm not sure Eberling did it. Uh, and then you obviously think, think he was innocent, innocent, and I think he did do it. Eberling? Yes. So on this one, Jack the Ripper, unless they have DNA, which I think they do, because there was a History Channel series where this guy thought that his... Uh, his relative was related to Jack the Ripper, and they did DNA to see. So they have DNA, I believe, from a scarf, which we'll get into. Oh. Um, but uh, that series did not continue, so I think that that whole theory of him being related to Jack the Ripper was debunked, and they never finished the oh. series. Yeah. It was very interesting, though. Don't want to be humiliated on national well, TV. Well, and in that series, they try to connect H.H. H. Holmes. That's what it was. He was related to H.H. H. Holmes, and they were trying to prove that H.H. H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper were the same. That the And the, it looks compelling. There was definitely, after the killings stopped in London, the killings started in Chicago, but they weren't slashers like Jack the Ripper. And and then they were trying to see if they were one and the same guy. They even compared handwriting. They did all of this stuff. So it's definitely compelling as evidence. But the fact that it has not continued makes me think it was not proven. I personally do not think that Jack the Ripper was H.H. H. Holmes, which that's our next case is H.H. H. Holmes. We'll get into. They have a lot of theories on Jack the Ripper. They do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so to correct, you said you didn't go on a tour of no, a cab driver. We didn't go on the tour. The cab driver um, was giving us information on Jack the Ripper okay. and the thoughts that they think still today in the London area. Okay. Well, in uh, 1888, we've got 
um, you know, like the famous uh, Frank Lloyd Wright began working for a firm in Chicago um, as far as, you know, architecture, things like that. Uh, the National Geographic Society was incorporated. I'm not sure. There was like a huge blizzard in the Northeast. They called it the blizzard of 1888. Uh, Tesla and the other guy, you know, who was it um, that did electricity? Good grief. The light bulb. Um, Edison. Yeah. They were fighting over AC and DC. Um, and then also, of course, we've got Gandhi who traveled to London and, um, and then we had the murders. Like, if you look at what was going on in 1888, the murders of Jack the Ripper, as you can see, are in the that year. So it was a big deal. Now, you usually do cost and such. I couldn't find Could anything Could you not on find that. anything? Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's what like What things pennies. cost. Oh, yeah. yeah. Gas, too. Well, they didn't have gas, but. Well, yeah, they did. Mm, no, no, they, they didn't, didn't have gas. No, they didn't. <laughs> nope. Okay. It's not Is like I live back there. Zachary already getting to you. <laughs> okay. One thing I learned in my research that I did not know about was that there were suspected 6 to 11 victims. Now, they have a term called ripperologists that I also didn't know existed. This is a term for those that they devote all their spare time to studying Jack the Ripper. And like doctors or no, they're just just regular. They can be anywhere from an anybody. amateur sleuth to oh. you know a criminal investigator, mm-hmm. criminal investigators, right? They have what they call the cannot canonical. Is that how you say it? Five that they're for sure. The five are Jack the Ripper victims, and oh. yeah, and they believe they were killed by the same man. Some have tried to say that Jack the Ripper and the murders didn't even exist. I didn't know that existed. I mean, there are people that think it was like a whole media newspaper thing to scare women out of prostitution. Some didn't think the Holocaust was real. So, you know. We know it was. I mean, you have the crime scene videos and, you know, all that. Or not videos. They didn't have video back then. They didn't have video back then, but pictures. I literally had a sip of the daiquiri, I promise. Okay. Now, uh, also, you know, I mean, that's obviously a dumb thing and it's an insult. But... I was surprised to learn. Okay, the uh, okay. Let me back up. Some say that the women were not sex workers. That's not true. They were. They were. But I was surprised to learn where the women came from. A lot of them were divorced ladies with children, and so they did occasional sex work. They were not. That was not their profession. Some of them. Most of them. Really? Yes. I was shocked. And uh, and I guess I was shocked because, again, it's like the Black Dahlia. There were so many myths around her. There were just a lot of myth, myths around these women, and they were not they were not full-time sex workers. I thought some there of them were. There were one or two oh, okay. that did. But what was also interesting is um, many, if not all, will have to, um, I'll have to remember as I read my notes, were alcoholics. I could see that. Yeah. So they I were, mean, divorce, children. Well, they were alcoholics, and that caused the divorce oh. for some of them. And um, so it was very interesting. And I want to um, give you a website to go to right off the bat that's the authority to me on Jack the Ripper and all my research. And it's jack-the-ripper.org. This guy has, it would take you weeks to get through all of his stuff. But he, I wonder if any were not 
part-time or prostitutes. We'll, we'll you know, get like into an accident, it. Mm-hmm. sort of. But I mean, he has like the events that he's got evidence. Wow. He has crime scene photos. He has videos. There's so many good things. Um, Is other, he one of the five that you were talking about that really investigated this? Remember, you said there's five. No, I said there's five victims for sure there, Jack the Ripper, oh, okay. but they think there might be as many as 11. So you've got the five victims that are for sure, and then there's six others that might be that people, wow. you know, suspect. So, yeah, I mean, he's got the history, the police hunt. It's so good. Same M.O. on the others, too? We'll, we'll get into that. Okay. You know, you ask all these questions I when know. we get started. Because I don't, I don't even know. read these cases until <laughs> Sherry... Presents them to me, so I have questions like our listeners probably do. Yes. Mm-hmm. So any that are not answered, ask for sure. But what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to go through the victims from the Jack the Ripper website instead of me like rewriting history. Right. I just decided to grab his stuff. But I want to give honor to whom honor is due. This is not my research. This is from Jack the Ripper dot org. Okay. So here we go. We're going to get to the victims right off the bat. So on the 31st of August, 1888, the horrifically mutilated body of a woman was found in a gateway in Bucks Row in Whitechapel. Now, when you were in England, did you go to the Whitechapel no, district? we didn't. Okay. Mm-mm. Later that day, she was identified as Mary Ann Nichols, better known to her family, friends, and acquaintances as Polly Nichols. She had separated from her husband and five children in 1888. And thereafter, her life became a downward spiral, blighted by poverty and alcoholism. So let me see. I hope I have these named. I may not have these named. Oh, good grief. Okay, so this one is the first one. And um, Polly. And I thought I had a picture of her actually with her family. Um, You can look it up. I mean, she was from a middle class home. And uh, she was not... You know, like she was raised in a good family. Um, but you and so know, there's a picture of her with her kids and husband. It, you know, back then, too, women didn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, and in a divorce, you could lose your kids. Mm-hmm. Oh, she did. And she was an alcoholic. Yeah, she did. So. Her husband and their family got the kids. So and you fall on tough times. She did. And back then, tough times were oh, yeah. deadly for women, especially. Well, yeah. Yeah. Even men and children, but women and children. Women they could especially. die of starvation, etc. She had been separated from her husband and her five children in 1880. So this is like eight years later. And so by the beginning of August 1888, she found her way to the east end of London, where she resided at two Spitalfields uh, common lodging houses, which was called Wilmot's. And it was situated at 18 Thrall Street and the White House located on Flower and Dean. So the, the cost of a night's lodging at that time was four pence. But on the night of the 30th, she didn't have even this tiny amount. Oh, no. And so she was denied a night's, they call it a DOS, at Wilmot's Common Lodging House. Mary Nichols uh, was known at the time as an unfortunate or a woman who in the days when there was no welfare system to help those who had fallen on hard times, they might turn to casual prostitution in order to raise the money for a bed, a bite to eat, and drink to feed her addiction. So that's a drawing of her. Uh, That night, Mary was wearing a bonnet that none of the other residents of the lodging house had seen her with before. So I don't know if she purchased it, 
But uh, since she was evidently intending to resort to prostitution in order to raise the money for her bed, she felt that this would be an irresistible draw to potential clients. And so she was escorted from the premises by the deputy lodging housekeeper. Polly laughed at him and said, I'll soon get my DOS money. See what a jolly bonnet I have now. Really? I wonder where she got it if she didn't even have the money for... I don't know. Maybe she used her money to get it and then then didn't have it for... I'm not sure, but she thought that would be a good advertising. Right. And that people would be drawn to her. So it sounds like, I mean... Or make her look more, you know, sophisticated. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, the dress back then was amazing, even, you know, if you were poor. But she... I mean, she looks like you would think any lady would look at that time. Mm -hmm. And so it makes me wonder if this was her first night uh, of sex work. Because it it says um, she was wearing a bonnet. And since she was evidently intending to resort to prostitution in order to raise money for her bed, she thought it'd be an irresistible draw. And those are his words, not mine. I know that prostitution's not politically correct, which I really don't usually care about being politically correct. But... That's that's what she was doing, and so it makes me think she just started. Yeah, I, t- I agree. And she might have had the bonnet herself anyway. Mm-hmm. From her old life. Yeah. Because she would have had all yeah. of that from her old life. And look she, how nice she looks dressed. It is eight years later, so I'm not sure what she was doing between her divorce oh. and now. Yeah, because she years? divorced in 1880, so oh, I'm yeah. not sure what was going on. Now, at 2.30 on the morning of August 31st, a friend of hers by the name of Emily Holland met her by the shop at the junction of Osborne Street and Whitechapel Road. Mary was very drunk, and she boasted to Emily that she had made her lodging money three times over but had spent it. Concerned at Mary's drunken state, Emily tried to persuade her to come back to Wilmot's with her. Mary refused, and telling Emily that she must get her lodging money somehow, she stumbled off along Whitechapel Road, and that was the last time that Mary Nichols was seen alive. Wow. Did you say how old she was? No, because I'm not sure, but I'm assuming probably 30s. Because she had children by the time she divorced. Uh, If I can remember from the picture, I, I know for sure, too. I don't know if she had more kids. I just was curious if, because Jack the Ripper, did he have a certain age? They did all seem very similar in age, actually. Hmm. Um, Now, uh, at 345, the body of a woman was found lying next uh, to a gateway in Bucks Row, just off Whitechapel Road, in around 10 minutes walk from the corner where Mary had met Emily. So, like, literally 10 minutes later, or a 10-minute walk from where she saw Emily, her body is discovered. Her throat had been cut back to the spine. Oh, my. The woman uh, being so savagely inflicted that, according to some newspaper reports, it had almost severed her head from her body. Someone very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and wow. angry. Yeah, very now, this angry. this to me, you know, he may have been a sexual sadist, but to me, this is rage against women and a certain type of woman. Uh, and by that, I mean... A sex worker. Like, obviously, he's picking up women that are sex workers. Within 45 minutes, she had been placed on a police ambulance, which in reality was nothing more than a wooden handcart, and had been taken to the mortuary of the nearby Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary. Here, Inspector Spratling of the Metropolitan Police uh, Police's J Division arrived to take down a description of the, at the time, unknown victim, and he made a horrific discovery that in, in addition to the dreadful wound to the throat, a deep gash ran all 
the way along the woman's ad- abdomen, she had been disemboweled. And where was her, where, where, where was it on top of her or did he just take it with him? Uh, wasn't it, I don't know. Wasn't it she, on top there was or just by a, the side of her? I'm her not insides, sure. insides, I believe. There was just a gash and her throat was slit. That's terrible. And I believe, again, if we look at the mortuary photos, this is her right here. Oh. Okay. Um, then we have, uh, later that day, they discovered that her name was Marianne Nichols, and her father, Edward Walker, was traced and taken to the mortuary where he formally identified the body as that of his daughter. With him was Mary El- uh, Mary's excuse me, eldest son named Edward, who recognized her as his mother. An hour later, her estranged husband, William Nichols, arrived and went to the mortuary to view her body. Genuinely distressed by what he saw, he shook his head disbelievingly and whispered to her, I forgive you as you are what you have been to me. According to one newspaper, he emerged from the mortuary ashy white and sighed, well, there's no mistake about it. It uh, has come to a sad end at last. So it sounds like she was drinking before they divorced. It does. And that may be why they divorced. So the funeral was a secret. They didn't want morbid curiosity seekers, you know, taking, you know, pictures or looking at her, etc. And so that was uh, September 6, 1888. But a strange coincidence occurred. The ruse that was resorted to in order to get her body to the undertakers could be said to have included an element of precognition. For Mary Nichols' body was brought out of the mortuary back gate in Chapman's Court from where it was taken to the undertaker's premises on Hanbury Street. Two days later, the murderer would strike again and would murder Annie Chapman in Hanbury Street. So the same street. That's pretty quick. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just a few days later. So this is uh, Anne, Annie right here. Is that her right there, too? No, this is her. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so this is Annie. Um, yeah, there's... You know, they sort of look alike. They do. There's definitely a type. To dark the first hair, one. And their facial features are yeah. a little bit similar, except for this one to me. But um, now, I don't know. Let me see in my notes here if I have a drawing of Annie. No. Okay. So we'll get back to uh, mm-hmm. these. Okay. 15 or so minutes walk from the city of London Cemetery. You'll find Manor Park Cemetery, where a small memorial remembers Jack the Ripper's second victim, Annie Chapman, who was nicknamed Dark Annie. Like Mary Nichols, Annie was also seen had also seen a downward spiral due to alcoholism, and she had left her husband, John Chapman, and her children seven years previously. John would send her periodic allowances until his death in 1886, wow. whereupon Annie supported herself by selling her own crochet work, as well as matches and flowers, and then she would supplement her earnings with casual prostitution. See, again, these were not women that that was their career. They would do it when they needed to eat or to sleep. It's reported most of them were prostitutes. Yeah, I think but all people, of them. But people, you just assume it's all the time prostitute, mm-hmm. not just to yeah. occasionally. Which That's is sad. Which is the motivating factor for a lot of prostitutes even mm-hmm. today. They need money, drugs, if they're on drugs, mm-hmm. uh, and a place to stay. 
or they're just trying to provide for their children. Remember that lady that was murdered, that she was a high-end oh, yeah. uh, sex worker yeah, and no I one knew? Yeah, that, yeah. And a housewife. <clears throat> yeah. Nobody knew till after her death. And she tried everything mm-hmm. to support her uh-huh. family except for sell her house. I'm like, why didn't you sell that huge house? You could have been set, you know. So, well, anyway, uh, so by September of 1888, she was living off and on at Crossingham's Lodging House on Dorset Street in Spitalfields. She appears to have enjoyed a cordial relationship with other tenants, and the deputy keeper, Timothy Donovan, remembered her as being an inoffensive soul whose main weakness was a fondness for drink. However, following a fight with another resident at the lodging house in the last week of August, Annie had received a black eye and had been left bruised around the chest and head, and she was in a lot of pain. Oh. So she sounds like a really nice person, but when you're around that element, you know, that I'm sure they had to be around due to poverty and crime, etc., she, you know, she got hurt. At 5 p.m. on Saturday, September 7th, Annie met uh, her friend Amelia Palmer in Dorset Street. Annie looked extremely unwell. Was she a prostitute also? I don't know. Just as her friend. And then she said she was feeling too ill to do anything. Amelia met her again 10 minutes later, still standing in the same place, although Annie was by then trying desperately to rally her spirits. It's no use giving way. I must pull myself together and get some money or I shall have no lodgings, were the last words she said to Amelia. At 11.30 p.m. that night, Annie turned up at Crossingham's lodging house and asked Timothy Donovan if she could sit in the kitchen. Since he hadn't seen her for a few days, Donovan asked where she had been, and she said in the infirmary, she replied weakly. He allowed her to go to the kitchen where she remained until the early hours of Saturday morning, the 8th of September, 1888. At 1.45 a.m., Donovan sent John Evans, the lodging house's night watchman, to collect the fourpence for her bed from her. He found her a little tipsy and eating potatoes in the kitchen. When he asked her for the money, she replied wearily, I haven't got it. I am weak and ill and have been in the infirmary. Annie then went to Donovan's office and implored him to allow her to stay a little longer. And he told her that if she couldn't pay, she couldn't stay. Right. And it sounds heartless, but, you know, Mike used to manage rental properties. I know it sounds terrible, but you have to be that way because people will just keep staying and staying and staying. take advantage. But he also was very... Um, cognizant of the type of people too that he was dealing with because some they were lying like they had like 15 grandmothers that died right right. you know all of that nonsense (laughs) but they could buy a brand new car and a tv right exactly but there were others that really could get behind and they would keep him updated they get on money every time they had it and blah blah so he would have an exception you know to his rule right well to me if she was faithful and paying her money that would probably be one that I would let stay that night, but probably not the next. If you're not going to get your money right, I probably wouldn't keep going on and on. Um, so, I, well, I doubt back then too. Women were treated considered really like bad. A man was, and yes. I mean they put him out on the street, especially a woman of you know ill repute because she's you know doing sex work, right? I mean, if we thought the way the Sergeant Hansen thought of Black Dahlia was bad, oh, you can was, imagine in 1888. That was terrible. Okay, Uh, Annie turned to leave, but then turning back, she told him to save her bed, adding, I shall have, uh, I shall not be long before I am in, I shall soon be back, and don't let the bed. John Evans then escorted her from the premises and watched her head off along Dorset Street, observing later that she appeared to be slightly tipsy as opposed to being drunk. 
At 5.30 that morning, Elizabeth Long saw her talking with a man outside number 29 in Hanbury Street. But since there was nothing suspicious about the couple, she continued on her way, hardly taking any notice. 30 minutes later, at 6 a.m., John Davis, an elderly resident of number 29, found her horrifically mutilated body lying between the steps and the fence in the backyard of the house. She was later identified by her younger brother, Fountain Smith. So in 30 minutes, she was killed. So the man outside number 29 obviously was a suspect. Right. And But nobody paid him any notice. So that tells me a lot. He looked normal. Yeah. Well, a lot of killers do. Right. He didn't. Because he in your mind, you're thinking of a monster and you yeah. have a certain idea what they look he like. He obviously wasn't a vagrant. He, it could be your neighbor. Yeah. I mean, he, he didn't look, you know, he didn't look um, like a killer, which they don't. That's no. the thing. That's why some <laughs> of them are such good. Right. Serial killers. Right. You know, not all of them look like Richard no. Ramirez. I mean, Ted he Bundy. He definitely looked evil. Oh, he did. If there is was any legacy from the horrific and brutal murder of Annie Chapman, it was at the newspapers and, and through them, the public at large began to pay attention to the plight of the poor women of the class from which Annie had come. It didn't go unnoticed that like Mary Nichols before her, Annie had died for the sake of four pence that would have paid for her bed. The Daily Telegraph emphasized this point. Dark Annie's spirit still walks Whitechapel unavenged by justice. Her dreadful end has compelled a 100,000 Londoners to reflect what it must have been like to have no home at all except the common kitchen of a low lodging house. To sit there sick and weak and bruised and wretched for lack of fourpence with which to pay for the right of a DOS, to be turned out after midnight to earn the requisite pence anywhere and anyhow, and in the course of earning it to come across your murderer and to caress your assassin, was a quote. Okay, the next one is the murder of Elizabeth Stride, which is right here uh, in uh, this top corner. You know, they all sort of look close to the same age. They do. Are you trying to figure out what their ages were? No. Mm. I was curious as to what four pence was. Okay. So, you can keep talking. I don't want to read. Okay. So, Elizabeth Stride was born Elizabeth Gustaf's daughter in uh, Sweden. On the 27th of November, 1842. In 1866, she immigrated to England, arriving in London on the 7th of February that year. Now, I love this. That's why I like that website I told everybody about. Because he goes, I mean, he knows a lot of detail about the victims and the, you know, and again, I'm I'm reading his stuff, okay, from his blog, so you know. But three years later, on the 7th of March, 1869, she married John Thomas Stride at the Church of St. Uh, Gillison the Fields Holborn and the newlyweds moved to the east end of London where they opened a coffee shop in Crisp Street Poplar which I love the names I know they're so cool 
Now, the couple separated around 1877, so 11 years before the murder started, after which Elizabeth began residing at various common lodging houses, and she also became involved with a man by the name of Michael Kidney. Uh, over the next few years, she began drinking heavily, and she made numerous appearances before magistrates on charges of being drunk and disorderly. For the six years prior to her death, she had resided on and off at a common lodging house at 32 Flower and Dean Street in Spitalfields. After a long absence, she had returned to the lodging house on the Tuesday before her death. Can you bring up her Elizabeth Stride? Elizabeth Stride? Yeah. And by the way, back then, a pence was a penny. Okay. Today it's a penny, but it's worth one twenty nine. A pence is worth today one twenty nine. Okay, so, so about penny, four pennies. Four pennies for a lodging a, a place. Mm-hmm. Who shall I look up? Elizabeth Stride. I want to make sure we have the correct picture for her. Because right. I think they're in order, but I want to make sure. Because I see five victims, but there's also six. Oh, okay. So that's not in order. Her down here. Yeah. Okay. Can you look up Annie Chapman to make sure, sure I have will. the correct? Why wouldn't you put them in order? Oh, yeah. when he did it, you mean? Yeah, on the picture. So, okay, that is Annie Chapman. So on the website, that's Annie Chapman is right. And then the first one, um, Mary, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, Mary it. Ann Nichols. Can you look her up? Make sure we got the right. Yeah, and it's... You can see that she's Swedish, too, because I, I was thinking, okay, yeah, so, so that, that, one's, that right. one's right. So this one, I'm not sure why that's there, but look like her her facial structure definitely looks like, you know, different to me in mm-hmm. that she does have a like the wider forehead, the bone structure above her eyes definitely looks more Swedish. Um, I think she would have been very pretty. Like, they're, they're not, you know... Well, this isn't a flattering with the autopsy back in I the know, 1800s. But still, you can see but like even her. She, she is pretty. The first three looks. up there, they look a lot alike to they me. They do. They do. Which you can see on the Which website. Which I wonder if that's actually her. Like maybe that's a drawing of Annie. Well, maybe. I'm not sure what whoever made that picture was doing. Okay. On Saturday, the 29th of September, 1888, she had spent the afternoon cleaning two rooms at the lodging house for which she was paid sixpence by the deputy keeper. And by 6.30 p.m., she was enjoying a drink in the Queen's Head pub at the junction of Fashion Street and Commercial Street. Returning to the lodging house, she dressed ready for a night out, and at 7.30, she left the lodging. There were several sightings of her over the course of the next five hours, and by midnight, she had found her way to Burner Street off uh, Commercial Road. At 12.45 on the 30th of September, a man named Israel Schwartz saw her being attacked by a man in a gateway off Burner Street known as Dutfield Yard. Schwartz, however, though he was a witness, uh, thought he was witnessing a domestic argument. So he crossed over the road to avoid getting dragged into the quarrel. Oh. It's highly likely that Schwartz actually saw the early stages of her murder. It's interesting he didn't stop. A lot of people do that. I I, know. Yeah. Doesn't make it right. It doesn't. It's like they don't want to get involved or whatever. And I'm like, get involved. You know, I mean, that's, I've been told, hey, you probably shouldn't, you know, say certain things or do certain things. Well, I'm not going to let just people, you know, get hurt. And um, so I've been told that a lot lately. Her body was found in 
Dutfield's yard. At 1 a.m., Lewis Deemschitz, a steward of a club that sighted onto Dutfield Yard, came down Burner Street with his pony and Costermonger's Barrow, I don't know what that means, and turned into the open gates of the yard. Immediately he did so, the pony shied and pulled left. I think uh, the burrow is the back end. It's like the open. I wonder if they were picking up dung. That's what that is. Oh, maybe so. Costermongers. Oh. Oh. I don't know what that is. But anyway, so the pony pulls left. He looked into the darkness and saw a dark form on the ground. He tried to lift it with his whip but couldn't, so he jumped down and struck a match. It was wet and windy, and the match flickered on for just a few seconds but it was sufficient time for him to see that it was a woman lying on the ground. For some reason, he thought the woman might be his wife and that she was drunk. Oh, wow. So he went into the club to get some help in lifting her up. However, he found his wife in the kitchen. So he got a candle, and he and several other members went out to the yard. And by the candle's light, they were able to see a pool of blood gathering beneath the woman. So it was growing. So she was just Just killed. Just killed, yeah. The police were sent for and a doctor was summoned to pronounce life extinct. It was noted that although, as in the cases of the previous victims, a woman's throat had been cut, the rest of the body had not been mutilated. This led the police to deduce that the killer was interrupted when he turned Uh into the yard, right? Uh The body was removed to the nearest mortuary, which still stands, albeit as a ruin, in the nearby churchyard of St. George in the East, and here she was identified as Elizabeth Stride. Uh... Now, this is kind of bizarre. Um, oh, that's Catherine Eddowes up there in the top right corner. Yeah, that's who that is. Okay, so on the night of her burial, a lady went to the police station in Cardiff and made a, the bizarre claim that she had spoken with the spirit of Elizabeth Stride in the course of a seance, and the victim had identified her killer. The Somerset County Gazette reported on the extraordinary revelations a week later. An extraordinary statement bearing upon the Whitechapel tragedies was made to the Cardiff police on Saturday by a respectable-looking elderly woman who says she was a spiritist and a spiritualist and in, in company with five other persons held a seance on Saturday night. They summoned the spirit of Elizabeth Stride, and after some delay, the spirit came and in answer to the question stated that the murderer was a middle-aged woman whose name she mentioned and who resided at a given number in Commercial Road or Street, Whitechapel, who belonged to a gang of 12. Really? Yeah, I, I don't know. Sense. That sounds... Yeah. It says that also those two previous murders that were linked to the Whitechapel murders, they didn't think those were committed by Jack the Ripper. Yeah, that that's why I was saying it was a dispute. Right. Some believe it's up to 11. Yeah, and some... some but they know yeah. for sure the five. I think there's for sure six. I think they're all connected. Maybe. Yeah. And we'll get into the others. But okay. I think for sure there were six. I think there was a murder before the Marianne Nichols. Oh, you do? Mm-hmm. Okay, now the murder of Catherine Edows. So that's her in the top right corner. Mm-hmm. Um, she was born in Wolverhampton, on the 14th of April, 1842, although her family moved to London when she was a young girl. Look how she's dressed, sort of. Mm-hmm. Looks like she's a... She came from like a good family. A good family, mm-hmm. yeah. Good financial station. When mm-hmm. we say that, we're not referring to value. No, Just at no, that time, no. um, she was a person that you know grew up in a, a home that had good financial support, etc. Mm-hmm. But by the time she reached her mid-teens, both of her parents had died. 
And she and her siblings were separated, with Catherine returning to Wolverhampton to live with an aunt. Later, she met a former soldier by the name of Thomas Conway, and it was claimed that the couple were married, although no proof of this has been found. She has his initials, TC, tattooed in blue blue ink on her arm. Well, that's rare back then. Right. A tattoo? Yeah. Wow. The couple would have three children together, and they earned a meager income by selling what, they, uh, what were known as chapbooks, which were cheap books sold on the streets by peddlers. By the end of the 1870s, the couple had moved to London and were living in Westminster. Catherine, however, had started drinking heavily. Westminster, I have been. Okay. Very nice area. Okay. Real nice area. And she was now an alcoholic. She had a fiery temperament. And so the relationship became extremely tempestuous, and the couple repeatedly split up. So you can imagine what that looked like. Right. According to one of Catherine's sisters, Conway was an abusive partner, and Catherine also often sported black eyes as a result of domestic violence. Wow. In 1880, they separated altogether, and Catherine gravitated to the east end of London, where she moved into Cooney's Common Lodging House at 55 Flower and Dean Street. And here in 1881... So seven years before the murders, she met a man named John Kelly, who earned his living as a casual laborer at the local markets. The couple would live together as man and wife at the lodging house until Catherine's death in 1880. The deputy lodging housekeeper would later remember her fondly as a very jolly woman who was often singing. Oh, you know, that's sort of unheard of, just living with someone back then. I know, and a tat. She was and way ahead of her time, right. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> now, each su- summer, Kathy and Kelly would head for Kent to go hop-picking, which was a popular way for EastEnders at the time to enjoy a break from the stifling and overcrowded streets of the district, while at the same time providing opportunity to earn a little ready cash. In September 1888, they set off for their annual hop-picking break, but as the hop yield was disappointing, disappointingly low that year on account of an unusually wet summer, Work was limited, and they decided to return to London, arriving back in the capital on the afternoon of Friday, September 28th. Mm. Kelly managed to earn six pence that day, and Catherine, having taken two pence for herself, handed him four pence, telling him to use it to get a bed at Cooney's that night. She told him that she would get a bed in the casual ward of the Shoe Lane workhouse. Although she did get a bed, there was some trouble at the workhouse, and she was asked to leave. Oh. She turned up at Cooney's at 8 a.m. on the Saturday, the mor- Saturday morning. The couple went to a pawnbroker's shop on Church Street where they pawned Kelly's boots, using the money to buy breakfast. Oh. That afternoon, Catherine told Kelly that she was going to try and borrow some money from her daughter in Bermondsey, and at 2 p.m. they departed. According to Kelly's later testimony, he warned her about the Whitechapel murderer. But Catherine brushed aside his fears, saying, Don't you fear for me. I'll take care of myself, and I shan't fall into his hands. It was never established how she spent the rest of the afternoon. She did not visit her daughter. She did acquire the money somehow, because at 8 p.m. that evening, she was arrested for drunkenness on Aldgate High Street by Police Constable Robinson of the City of London Police. Maybe prostitute. How else would she get it? That's why I was thinking. She made, maybe didn't want to yeah. go to her daughter. Yeah. She was taken to Bishopsgate Police Station where she was locked in a cell to sober up and she promptly fell fast asleep. By midnight, she was awake and was deemed sober enough for release by the city goaler, or gaoler, P.C. George Hutt. Before leaving, she told him that her name was Marianne Kelly and gave her address at 6 Fashion Street. But we know it was Catherine Edow's. 
Right. Hut escorted her to the door of the police station, told her to close on her way out. All right. Good night. Good night, old cock, was her reply as she headed out into the early morning, which is a bad idea. Oh, very bad. Don't release people, especially women, in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. There's a case on True Crime Garage where they did that. It was a girl that, uh, remember, she was acting yes. unusual yes. at a restaurant. That, yes. Ate a meal, didn't pay. Mm-hmm. They, you know, and she goes, and they release her mm-hmm. in the middle of the night mm-hmm. instead of waiting for the mom to get there. And she disappeared off the face of the and earth. And the mom had talked to him. And said, please and don't wait. release don't her. Release her. I'm coming. Ugh. See, I'm getting all I aggravated. I remember that. Got to calm down. I want to get all tight in my shoulder and it start hurting again. At. 1.35 a.m., three men, Joseph Lawid, Joseph Hyam Levy, and Harry Harris, are talking with a man at the church passage entrance into Mitre Square, located on the eastern fringe of the city of London. The, ten minutes later, at 10.45, Police Constable Alfred Watkins walked his beat into Mitre Square and discovered her horrifically mutilated body lying in the darkness of the square's southwest corner. As with the previous victims, her throat had been cut and she had been disemboweled. But in addition, the killer had targeted her face. Oh. Cutting deep V's into her cheeks and eyelids. He also removed and had gone off with her uterus and left kidney. And as with the previous murders, he once again melted into the night. Since the 1990s, the cemetery authorities have maintained a simple memorial plaque to her And as with the plaque to Mary Nichols on the opposite side of the path, people come here to remember her and to lay flowers and coins as close as it is now possible to get to the final resting place. Why do you think that he took? I have no idea. I'm sure there's like a cannibal or I don't know. Now, Mary Kelly is the most unusual or I guess you would say mysterious of them all. Let me bring up, I know this is a for sure sketch of her, and she looks like a very handsome woman. She, look, to me, looks completely different than the rest of them. Mm-hmm. So this is Mary Kelly, and... Well-dressed, look at that. This is supposedly his last victim, but again, you know, there's dispute over right. the number. But she's also the most mysterious. So her name was Mary Jane Kelly. She's a victim that we know the least about. In fact, we there's hardly anything we know about her prior to her arrival in the East End of London. What we do know is based on what she chose to reveal about her past to those she knew. And the veracity of what she did reveal is difficult to determine. Indeed, we don't even know for certain if her name was Mary Kelly. Oh, really? According to her boyfriend, Joseph Barnett, with whom she lived until shortly before her death, she had told him that she was born in Limerick in Ireland and that her father's name was John Kelly and that she had six or seven brothers and one sister. The family moved to Wells when she was a child, and when she was 16, she met and married a collier named Davis or Davies. Three years later, her husband was killed in a mine explosion, and Mary moved to Cardiff to live with a female cousin who introduced her to prostitution. Mary moved to London around 1884, where she made the acquaintance of a French woman who ran a high-class brothel in Knightsbridge, in which establishment Mary began working. So this is one that we would consider a traditional, if there's such a thing, sex mm-hmm. worker, where it was her, and I hate to use the word career, but that's that's what she did. Because really, again, if you're a woman without any means back in the day, right. what were you going to do? 
There was really nothing because they didn't really hire women. I mean, even like if you I did mean, sewing and cleaning sewing, and ironing, yeah. things like that. But it was a just a pitiful, miserable, I'm mm-hmm. sure, existence. She told Barnett that during this period in her life, she had dressed well. She had been driven about in a carriage and for a time had led the life of a lady. She had, she, had, she said, made several vi- visits to France at that time and had accompanied a gentleman to Paris. But not liking it there, she returned back to London after just two weeks. From then on, she began using the continental version of her name and often referred to herself as Marie Jeanette Kelly. But thereafter, her life suffered a downward spiral, which saw her move to the east end of London, where she lodged with a Mrs. Bukey in the side thoroughfare off Ratcliffe Highway. Soon after her arrival, she established her landlady's assistance or enlisted her landlady's assistance in returning to the West End to retrieve a box which contained dresses of a costly description from the French lady. Mary had now started drinking heavily, Mm. and this led to a conflict between her and Mrs. Bukey, relations between them becoming so strained that Mary moved out and went to lodge at the home of Mrs. Mary McCarthy at 1 Breezers Hill, Pennington Street, St. George in the East. By 1886, she had moved into Cooley's Common Lodging House in Thrall Street, and it was while living here on Good Friday, April the 6th, 1887, she met Joseph Barnett, who worked as a porter at Billingsgate Fish Market. The two were were soon living together, and by 1888, they were renting a tiny room at 13 Miller's Court from John McCarthy, who owned a Chandler's shop just outside Miller Street. An article that appeared in the Daily uh, Telegraph shortly after her death described her as having been a fair complexion with light hair and she possessed rather attractive features. Those who knew Mary at around this time had been quite fond of her. According to one acquaintance, she was an excellent scholar. Really? And an artist of no mean degree. Whilst her friend Maria Harvey described her as, quote, much superior to most persons in her position in life. So wow. obviously educated uh, which that was rare for a woman. Wonder if the information she gave was real. I don't know. I wonder where she really came from. But if she was educated back in that day, right. she had to have come from a place of means where they were able to hire, you know, governesses and mm-hmm. tutors because most women were not educated at that time. No. Unless they were wealthy. Unless you were wealthy, yes, you're right. Remembering her in his memoirs in 1937, retired police officer Walter Dew claimed that she had known her quite well by sight. And he uh, told how he would often see her, quote, parading along Commercial Street between Flower and Dean Street in Aldgate or along Whitechapel Road. Uh. She was, he continued, usually in the company of two or three of her kind, fairly neatly dressed and invariably wearing a clean white apron, but no hat. According to her landlord, John McCarthy, her only fault was that when in liquor, she could be very noisy, but otherwise she was a very quiet woman. She and Barnett appeared to live happily together until mid-1888 when he lost his market job and she returned to prostitution, which caused arguments between them. And during one heated exchange, a pane in the window by the door of the room had been broken. The precariousness of their finances had resulted in Mary falling behind with her rent. And by Mm. early November, she owed her landlord uh, 29 shillings in rent. Oh, no. On... uh, October 30th, 1888, Joseph Barnett moved out. And although he and Mary remained on friendly terms and he would drop by to see her, the last time was around 7.30 on the evening of Thursday, November 8th, but he didn't stay long. Several people claimed to see her during the next 14 hours. 
One of them was George Hutchinson, an unemployed laborer who met her on Commercial Street at 2 a.m. on the 9th of November. She asked him if he would lend her sixpence, to which he replied that he couldn't as he had spent all of his money. Replying that she must go and find some money, she continued along Commercial Street where a man, coming from the opposite direction, tapped her on the shoulder and said something to her, whereupon they both started laughing. Oh, boy. The man put his arm around Mary, and they started walking back along Commercial Street, passing Hutchinson, who was standing under the lamp by the Queen's Head Pub at the junction of Fashion Street and Commercial Street. So you can see all of this is very close together, right? All these streets keep coming up, the same streets, the same um, you know places to stay. So the man had his head down with his hat over his eyes. Hutchison stooped down and looked him in the face, whereupon the man gave him what Hutchinson would later describe as a stern look. Uh. Hutchinson followed them as they crossed into Dorset Street, and he watched them turn into Miller's Court. He waited outside the court for 45 minutes, by which time they hadn't reemerged, so he left the scene. Wow. And the man was dressed well. Mm-hmm. Dressed well. Mm-hmm. That's my straw, if right. you hear that noise. <laughs> Not this most discreet. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so around... 4 a.m., two of Mary's neighbors heard a faint cry of murder. But because such cries were frequent in the area, often the result of a drunken brawl, they ignored it. At 10.45, the morning of November 9th, her landlord, John McCarthy, sent his assistant, Thomas Bauer, round to Mary's room, telling him to try and get some rent. Okay, so the timeline is at 2 a.m., right? Uh, she, <clears throat> excuse me, asked Hutchinson if he had any money. Yeah. He said no. Then a man comes and they go into um, Miller's court. So he waited for 45 minutes. So at, around this time, it's either 2.45 or closer to 3. At 4, two neighbors hear a faint cry of murder. So that's probably when she was killed at 4 a.m., then at 1045, the assistant Thomas goes up to get some rent. Bauer marched into Miller's court and banged on the door. There was no reply. He tried to open it, but found it was locked. He therefore went round to the broken window pane, reached in, pushed aside the shabby muslin, muslin curtain that covered it, and looked into the gloomy room. Moments later, an ashen-faced Bauer burst back into McCarthy's shop on Dorset Street. Governor, I knocked on the door and couldn't make anyone answer. I looked through the window and saw a lot of blood. Good God, you don't mean that, was McCarthy's reply. And the two men raced into Miller's Court where McCarthy uh, stooped down and looked through the broken pane of glass. McCarthy would later recall the horror of the scene that greeted him. The sight we saw, I cannot drive away from my mind. It more, looked more like the work of a devil than a man. I had heard a great deal about the Whitechapel murders, but I declare to God that I never expected to see such a sight as this. The whole scene is more than I can describe. I hope I never see a, such a sight like this again. So let me show you what freaked him out, which if you've done any uh, research on Jack the Ripper, you've seen this. And that one, I wonder if the cutting on the face and stuff, if that was the last victim. But um, but do you think? That's her. Wow. Look at but that. do you think that was by Jack the Ripper? 
Yes, this was because Jack that's the, the first time he went into someone's home, which he always wanted to do. I'm sure. Right. He wanted more time. So, like, she's missing her middle part. And look, you can wow. see the bone on her leg. Wow. Like, she's in her face. Look at her face. It looks like her the skin was peeled off. He needed more time to do what he, he wanted, wanted to yeah. do. He was escalating. Yes. Wow. So, the police were immediately sent, you know, and one of the officers at the scene was the Walter Dew guy, who many years later would recall the horror he said, on the bed was all that remained of the young woman, and there was little left of her, not much more than a skeleton. Her face was terribly scarred and mutilated. Mm. All this was horrifying enough, but the mental picture of that sight, which remains most vividly with me, is the poor woman's eyes. They were wide open and seemed to be staring straight at me with a look of terror. As news of another murder spread around the neighborhood, crowds of people converged at both ends of Dorset Street, and the police constable struggled to take to keep them at bay. More detectives and doctors were now arriving, but the police de- delayed entering the room as they believed they had been ordered to wait for bloodhounds to be brought to the scene and put on the scent of the killer. But uh. just before 1.30, they received word that the order had been countermanded, and they asked John McCarthy to force open the door, which he did. What they saw and smelt that afternoon as they filled the tiny room would haunt many of those present for years afterwards. And the horror of the experience was succinctly expressed by one of the attending doctors who later told a journalist that he had seen a great deal of dissecting rooms, but had never witnessed such a horrible sight as that inside 13 Miller's court. The police and doctors spent the next few hours carrying out a detailed inspection of the crime scene. In addition, a photographer was brought in and the body was photographed as it lay on the bed. This horrific and haunting image still exists. And it's one of the earliest crime scene photos that we have. That that looks horrible. Yeah, it's absolutely awful. Then the worst. I mean, you can see the wounding on her arms. You can see the blood on the door behind her. Wow. Um, her legs are splayed open, bent at the knees. And it looks like, I don't know what's on the table next to her, but it almost looks like body parts. Looks, it does. It looks like organ, an organ but of some kind. But you cannot recognize her as a human no. by her face. Like her the only face thing it is looks destroyed. Like he didn't touch is the forehead and the eyes. Mm-hmm. That's horrible. So, and it's interesting though he needed that time. Wonder how long he was in there. Well, if they heard murder at four, four, and no one went in there until ten forty-five, I believe he had hours. So once she yelled out murder, he probably waited a few moments to see if anyone was going to come to the door, and then once they didn't, he took his time doing exactly what he wanted to do. So just before four on the Sunday afternoon, a cart or a horse and a cart drew up on the opposite side of Dorset Street from Miller's Court, whereupon a large number of residents from the neighboring properties turned out to watch the remains of Mary Kelly being brought out in a long shell or coffin that was battered and scarred with constant use. She was then taken to the mortuary. Once the uh, body had been removed, the windows of 13 Miller's Court were boarded up, the door was padlocked shut, shut, and those who lived in the vicinity were left to come to terms with the horror that occurred. Few of them ever slept soundly in their beds at night. I feel it had to be someone younger, someone handsome, for the women to laugh and, and just go. Yeah. You know? Well, and, that, and the strength of, like, the first victim, the cutting at the throat all mm-hmm. the way to the spine almost. And that looks and this, like intestines. Those it does, like doesn't it? It does look like table. it. And so, like, you can see intestines here on the bed. That's just um, awful. It, it is awful. So this was... 
Was that her? No, that was the no. lady from Sweden. Can you pull up? Um, Mary. Mary. I'd like to see if there's... Well, she was a handsome woman. We have a drawing, but I want to see which one is her. Um, yeah, Mary Kelly. No, that's Marianne Nichols. This is Mary Kelly. Oh, sorry. Okay, so that's the the remainder from that fabulous website um, that I, I just wanted to go through the murders in depth because I had never, you know, I'd never done a, a deep. It's that one where she was dressed very well. Yeah. Looks like she came from money. I'm just wondering who this is. Okay, we'll have to figure that out. Yeah, who is that? Can you, cl- uh, it doesn't say? Mm-mm. Even. Okay. Now, Let me look at something. What's interesting for me from the start is the brazen attacks and quick work. I'm not sure he would need tons of time with Mary Kelly, but he definitely wanted more time. And I wondered, you know, how long would it take him to slit the throat of his victim and take some organs and disembowel his victims? So from the murder of Catherine at Al's, it seems the killer only needed two minutes or 10 minutes. I wonder if he had a medical background. I don't know. I don't think he would need one, though. So he only needed 10 minutes to slice a throat and disembowel a female. I know some of the old, you know, like I told you, the cab driver was talking to us. Some of the old theories were that he had to have medical. He had to be strong, young. I think he had they, to be strong. They thought at one time it was a... Um, Prince um, Victor. Right. Well, we'll get into that. I don't think it was. No, I don't either because he wasn't even there in that area. But it some have said they had seen a carriage from the royal family. But you know, again, I would. But rumors, you know, just rumors and rumors. So he only needed ten minutes, and then after setting this case for this podcast, is that her? I don't know. It might be. Um. So after saying this case, the killer obviously had intense rage to almost decapitate the first victim. He also had probably a deep, deep desire or even a fetish to mutilate and dissect the bodies as much as possible. Uh, Like it makes sense that eventually he would want time to do his work. You know, and I put that in air quotes. And he didn't have time on the street, but he did in the apartment. Yes. So I'm thinking he was probably a sexual sadist again in his knife was part of that, but I'm not sure. So what I want to do is, now that we've got the victims lined up, I want to save the the remainder of the story for part two. Okay, that'd be great. Outline of a Murder is a Mr. Joseph production. What do you think, Joseph? Ah!